Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. If you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Since exploding onto the music scene, the members of Savages have made their message clear. Be here now. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We have one of the best bands in the world, Savages, live from Chicago's Lincoln Hall. And we'll review the latest from rap star Drake. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, that's a little bit of the French dance duo Daft Punk from their Random Access Memories album, which happens to be one of the best-selling albums on vinyl for Amazon, the giant online retailer. We have been talking about the explosion in the music industry in sales of music on vinyl for some time. And of course, Record Store Day for the last couple of years has been been helping to get people excited once again about the LP. But there are two interesting stories that broke recently that underscore, again, some very real numbers. Sales in the U.S., according to Amazon, the online retailer, are up 745% for vinyl albums since 2008. No other corner of the music industry has seen numbers that good. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, it's still not a huge market. It's a mere 2% of all the music sold in the U.S., but vinyl is doing gangbusters for Amazon, and that means brick-and-mortar retailers are paying attention. Now, we have seen vinyl recordings in, in stores like Urban Outfitters and Hot Topic for some time. You know, they're there with the books and the toys that are meant to sell the clothes. It creates an experience, right? Whole Foods, however, has had a successful 
experiment out on the West Coast in the L.A. area where they've been selling vinyl in five of its 340 stores across the country, and people have been really excited about it. In fact, quote from Whole Foods, vinyl has created a fun factor in our stores. There are even DJs in some of the stores that are playing the records that are being sold, and Whole Foods intends to expand that to other outlets across the country. Now, Whole Foods, again, is kind of a niche place, right? But Target is the fourth largest music retailer in the United States, an estimated $500 million in music revenue in 2012, the last year we had numbers for. They are now testing vinyl sales as well, with about 80 titles that are going to be placed in a limited number of stores, and they're looking at expanding that, which means we might see vinyl back in the big chains and the mom-and-pop stores and even supermarkets soon. Who'd have thought that five years ago? Jim, last week we talked to Steve Jordan, the head of the Polaris Prize, which is Canada's most prestigious music award, and now we know the winner. Godspeed, you black emperor. We're hearing a little bit of their latest album, Alleluia, Don't Bend, Ascend. You know, it's the kind of album that would never win, say, maybe a Grammy Award in the United States. It's a deep underground record coming from a very experimental place. It's a Uh, good record. It's a good record, and it's the kind of record that the Polaris Prize is noted for honoring. But not surprisingly, we should have seen this coming with Godspeed You Black Emperor having a long reputation as contrarians, very punk rock, very underground, very non-mainstream. They have mixed feelings about winning this award, and they issued a statement in response to winning the award. They said, thank you, but three quick bullet points, as they say. Holding a gala during a time of austerity and normalized decline is a weird thing to do. Mm. Point two, organizing a gala just so musicians can compete against each other for a novelty-sized check doesn't serve the cause of righteous music at all. Mm. <laughs> They're starting to sound like Marlon Brando here <laughs> at the Oscars or something, right? Yeah, good one. And then lastly, asking the Toyota Motor Company to help cover the tab for that gala during a summer where the melting northern ice caps are live streaming on the Internet is insane and comes across as tone-deaf to the current horrifying malaise. Cheerful, fellas. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Very non-cheerful winners of this year's Polaris Prize. But they're putting their money where their mouth is. They said they're going to give their $30,000 in prize winnings to establish music education programs in Quebec prisons. That's MIA from the 2012 Super Bowl halftime performance uh, when she flipped the bird to the entire worldwide public. The NFL is not too happy about it. The Hollywood Reporter 
broke a story saying that the NFL is entering into arbitration seeking $1.5 million in damages from MIA. Uh, that's for, a lot of money for one finger. That's a lot of money for one finger. And they say that she breached the performance contract they had with her, a, a contract that basically says she needs to acknowledge, quote, the tremendous public respect and reputation for, get this, wholesomeness enjoyed by the NFL. Oh, th- this is the wholesome sport where 400-pound guys try to kill one another, yeah, right? Yeah, we have thousands of guys, right, with concussions now that uh, are permanently impaired as a result of playing this wholesome, wholesome sport, wholesome. right? But they say that all elements of the performance shall be consistent with such goodwill and reputation, and they say MIA's rigid middle digit violated that. MIA sees this as an unjustified slap on the wrist. She also points out that Madonna had a number of underage cheerleaders dancing provocatively around her at the same time, saying, well, what's the standard here? Her response, quote, so now they've scapegoated me into figuring out the goalposts on what is offensive in America? Like, is my finger offensive? listening to Sound Opinions, and that song is She Will, a track from one of our favorite albums of this year, Silence Yourself. It's the debut release by Savages, a UK quartet that combines these in-your-face lyrics with a super-aggressive art-punk sound. And they blew us away at this year's South by Southwest Music Conference. Right then and there, we kind of knew this band had to be on our show. So this summer, we taped a concert with them at Lincoln Hall here in Chicago. And Jim, it was nothing short of spectacular. You're not kidding, Greg. Now, regular listeners know I've been more than a little bit excited about this band. And the special part of what we're about to play for you was that we shared it with a live audience here in Chicago. And now we're going to share it with you at home. Hearing lead singer Jenny Beth guitarist Gemma Thompson and bassist Aisha Hassan talk about making their music while that amazing drummer Faye Milton was backstage warming up it was really something they have come so far these four women in such a short time debuting only a couple months ago on Matador Records so I started our conversation by asking Gemma Thompson about what their goals were as a band Let's start at the beginning. Gemma, this was your idea for this band. Mm -hmm. You put the group together. We have three Londoners, and we have Jenny from uh, Portier. Did I say there? Yeah, from France. From France. (laughs) What was the goal in putting this band together, Gemma? Well, um, at the time, Aisha and myself were playing music together for numerous years, and I met Jen um, playing guitar and John and Jen um, for some of their tours. And we kind of... We had the name before we had anything else for it. We had um, an idea of a kind of precise way to perform, a kind of directness that 
it was all about performance and not about recording initially, that it was about the intent and the energy and the way you play your instrument, not necessarily technically how you play your instrument, the way you approach it. So um, we, we, we had the idea, and then um, Jen came along and, and said, I have these lyrics, I have, you know, that completely attached to, the, to your idea, and it just all joined together from there. So there was this, the idea that's uh, expressed in the manifesto on Silence Yourself was there from the beginning. Be here now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the manifestos came um, at different stages. The Silence Yourself manifesto or text, and I still don't know how to call it, but we wanted to have uh, this kind of classic record cover, like almost... um, like an, it would look like a, whether a jazz cover or an experimental music cover or music concrete or so. And usually they have text in the front, yeah. and so we really wanted to have something like that. And in the way when we came up with the title "Silence Yourself," it didn't seem enough. It, it seems like that we should say more, or we should have a subtitle, or we should have something where people can have different doors where they can go to and and uh, emerge themselves into... You know what I thought of immediately was the famous cover of Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music, where he had this long uh, diatribe. He he also had the chemical formula for amphetamine uh, spelled out. (laughs) And it ends with this exclamation point that says, my week beats your year. (laughs) Which is the same idea, you know, this intensity. I'm going to give you 110% on stage. (laughs) Did the sound come together right away, Aisha? Yeah, I think when we started um, playing together, it kind of just clicked. Um, We all kind of uh, got in a room together and just, you know, started playing and and it felt right. And I think that's also what pushed it forward because it it, it came naturally. I I wanted to ask about that first gig because it was uh, January of 2012, I believe, right? And the band had basically been together for for a couple months at that point. Yeah, three, four months. So you play that first show and the reaction I got about that show from talking to other people about it was that they seemed fully formed first gig was it was all there like there was no evolution so much as just getting refining some things but basically it was all there from that first gig would you agree with that well we were supposed to play a show two weeks later of that show um, but what happened is um, my friend Scott from British Sea Power the singer of British Sea Power called us on the day he called um, my house and said, I think it was Johnny who lives with me, Johnny Hostile. He, he got the phone call and saying, so um, did Jenny start something with Gemma and are they up for doing a show tonight? Because <laughs> we have a band that pulled up and we don't know what to do. He had no idea what we sounded like either. He was just <laughs> like, so you've got something going on, just you know, come on down. Uh, and so Johnny was like, yeah. They're ready, they're going to do it without asking anyone else. And, uh, and everyone had jobs and I had to kind of I, find an excuse to Johnny leave. said yes before he asked us, actually, yeah. I think was the thing. And, so, and then Scotty called later and he was like, um, actually, I, I forgot to ask, is that their first show? <laughs> <laughs> and like, yes, but don't worry. And uh, what happened is that we went there and during the show... There was the manager of uh, British Seaport on the side of stage, and uh, he was with Johnny. And uh, there, there was not a fee. We didn't talk about any fee for that show. And so the manager was like, so how, how much do you want? So, I don't know. Let's wait for the first song, and then let's start <laughs> thinking about how much they're worth. 
And so we, after each song, he, the price got up. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear a song from Savage's set at Lincoln Hall here in Chicago. Here is I Am Here from Savage's Live on Sound Opinions. That was I Am Here from Savages live at Lincoln Hall here in Chicago. 
We'll be back with more from Savages in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we review the new album from quite possibly the biggest name in hip-hop today, Drake. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you've been listening to our conversation with the members of the breakthrough British band Savages. We recorded this special show in front of a live audience at Lincoln Hall here in Chicago. And many of you are going to remember Jim calling lead singer Jenny Beth the most galvanizing rock front person since Kurt Cobain. And Jim, for once, you're not far off from uh, being correct on that one. Uh, She is the kind of person that takes a stage, and I think you back off a couple of steps because (laughs) she takes over that stage. Now, before Savages, she recorded with her partner, Johnny Hostile, as John and Jen. Let's pick up the conversation by finding out how this French singer came to join her three British bandmates in Savages. I started John and Jen with Johnny Hostile maybe now seven years ago. And we have done two records. And... um, which I'm really proud of. And uh, we have learned everything from scratch, and uh, we knew nothing. We moved from our hometowns in France to London, and we're like babies, really. We didn't know anything. So we carried our gear everywhere. And and I think uh, what happened then is we signed a really bad deal with a record company, and that got us really depressed. And uh, we realised how brutal it, it was to be in that business, and we made... We made our own mistakes, in a way, which I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that's where we learn the most. From that point, then, we were like, we have to sue that label first, and then <laughs> we have to start our own. And so we started Pop Not Records and had... And then Gemma, after the last tour of John and Jen, she was like, I have this amazing bassist, and uh, I want to do something... Uh, my project, and she wanted Johnny Hostile to sing. <laughs> yeah, as originally, and yeah. So, and then I, I kind of proposed myself. I said, "Do you want to try?" With Raised me? your hand. The, the, the heck with my friend and roommate and and producer. Uh, you know, you want me. 
is what you said. It was kind of that, yeah. <laughs> so it was a coincidence that there were four women in the band. It wasn't like an intent. A that completely gonna... coincidence, yeah. Mm-hmm. Completely. Well, when, we, um, yeah. when we became the, th- the three of us, we realized that we needed a fourth uh, woman to complete the energy. It was just an idea of this energy that we were going to move forward. So we needed a female drummer. And we find, found Faye by um, weird fate, I think. And she's amazing. Yeah, she's she brilliant. Is. But she she's shy. Her. She's too shy to talk. No, no. she's actually warming up. Ah. It's, it's, it's like See, a sport. No, this I heard from Nils Bernstein, your, your publicist at Matador Records, saying, no, Faye's not going to do the interview because she's got this warm-up routine that she uses. Can you yeah. just give us a little idea of what that entails? <laughs> I, I don't think we could. Can I do a thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can. I mean, I remember years ago seeing Slayer backstage, and Dave Lombardo used to put, like, 25-pound weights, one on each ankle, and he would jog for half an hour. Wow. And you're like, holy cow. <laughs> right? Is that what Faye's doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that times 10, yeah. Let's she, talk about the influences. I heard from day one Wire, and I understand, Gemma, you're a huge Wire fan, in the way that this is incredibly intense, it's two minutes long, it doesn't need anything else, it's over. Mm, yeah, completely. It's this idea that's taken the, the format of, which is rock and roll, you know, um, guitar, bass, drums, vocals. It's taking that format, trying to take it somewhere else, you know, trying to treat it as not just as this kind of this particular art form but it could be a wider art form and it just chooses this form at the time um it's Mm. more about the way you approach the instruments you're playing um how you question how they work and how you work together and an intent and it's it's a very simple process it is about process the process that you write the process that you that you warm up the process that you get on stage and you play Greg, let's hear some of that process come to life. Here's the song No Face from Savages, live on Sound Opinions.
That was No Face from Savages on Sound Opinions live at Lincoln Hall. Let's get back to the conversation. I talked with lead singer Jenny Beth about a question I had about her need to be a show person that comes from someone close to her. Jenny, <laughs> your sister, Maud, oh is a brilliant academic She's in France, brilliant, yeah. right? who just mm-hmm. got her Ph.D., and her project was <laughs> writing a history of rock criticism. So for years, I would get these calls, Jim, I need to find Richard Meltzer, right? That sounds just like her. <laughs> that was exactly what it was like. And I'm, I'm at South by Southwest, and I'm, I'm walking to see you guys. It was, I'm like on the wrong side of town. It's three miles away, and I'm going to see because you sound like Wire. That's all I've read. British Press, and also Jeff Travis of Rough Trade said, see them. They're not as good as Palm of Violets, but almost. (laughs) Because he signed Palm of Violets and he didn't get them. But, you know, Jeff Travis, rough trade, the man who gave us the Smiths, right? He knows the thing. So I'm going to see you and I get this text and it's from Maud in Paris. Jim, you might like my sister's band. So I went. Now she got her doctorate. She is now a PhD. The doctor of rock criticism. Cotton and I don't have that degree. (laughs) And I said, I said, Maud, what is the question you would ask your sister? Oh, Oh, no. And she sent me this. She sent more of a story than a question. She said, oh, my God. "Uh, In the summer of 1989, I was seven and Camille was four. We went to Russia because our father's a drama director and won a sort of prize. The prize was a tour in Russia with a play directed by our father called 1789. I was young, but I had a small figurative role. Camille didn't have a role. She was too young. I did. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Well, you know, siblings lie. But was allowed to be around on stage during the rehearsals. What I remember is that every night when the play began, Camille would fight, literally punching and kicking our mother begging in order to go on stage. She didn't hurt our mother because she was only four, but she was more so eager to go and play. She never succeeded on getting on stage uh, in Russia that time, but you played there a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we did, yeah. Ask her if it was as good as it would have been the first time. <laughs> That's what Sis wants to know. How did it feel to finally get on stage in Russia? And so obviously this desire to make a noise was there early on. No, it's just that I didn't understand the difference between rehearsals and the actual showtime. Because my dad would allow me on stage while they were rehearsing during the day. And uh, so we're just fooling around at the background. And when showtime starts, I wasn't allowed. But I I have this weird memory where I remember actually managing to get there. (laughs) So I don't know if that's just my mind or Uh the truth, but... And so, yeah. But I had a part in the play. I didn't have anything to say, but I was... <laughs> well, your sister, who I said is a great rock critic, says, you know, she's as much of an actor on stage as she is a singer, and she's a very good singer. That's not to slight her singing. Do you buy that? Well, I mean, um, I grew up into theatre because my dad and my mother were really into theatre. My dad was a theatre director and a drama teacher. And he was, um, you know, I always, always had actors in my house and people, writers or different kind of artists. And and uh, I think um, I studied drama. I went to the drama school and I was supposed to do that, um, to be, you know, to, to work in theatre. But life chose for me because I, I, I met Johnny Hostile. That changed my life completely. So I started um, a working relationship and a love story, and the, and then it just kind of curved everything for me. I just chose to go to London. But I, I think uh, what, what happened when we formed Savages is that I could feel there was this kind of same... You know, there's a moment where I think it's Alan Moore calls it, calls it the fool's leap, 
where suddenly you take this risk of um, not doing necessarily what you were supposed to do or what, what you were thinking about doing, you know, when you were younger. And you take that risk and then you, you form a band and you, you, you start something from scratch. And um, I could sense there was these things from the girls as well and uh, this desire to take the risk, you know. Here's another song from Savages live at Lincoln Hall for Sound Opinions. It's called Shut Up.
That was Shut Up from Savages live at Lincoln Hall on Sound Opinions. Let's go back to our interview now by talking with guitarist Gemma Thompson about their stage presence. I asked her if their confrontational Take No Prisoners live show was there from the beginning. I think there was a certain element naturally there. I mean, we were all kind of willing to give up, to put everything into it, which is a simple thing to say, but in reality, you know, when you live in London, you know, you, you're there for a reason kind of thing, and you have to kind of be dedicated to put everything into it, and it is um, it's like a sport, you know. But, it but is, Gemma, we're yeah. living in this age of irony. It's all just entertainment. You don't have that attitude at all, any of you, no. do you? Aisha, you're, you're shaking your head. <laughs> Does this music matter still? I think there's... Um, there's a really great thing that Alan Vega said um, when he would get onto the stage and he would slap the audience as he came on stage. Someone asked him, why do you hit your audience as you go on the stage? And he said, well, when they go outside the venue, they're just going to be hit and punched by the people out there. You know, They're going to be mugged. They're going to be bruised. They're, you know, That's what I'm doing. It mirrors here what's out there. And that's, I think, the main... The preoccupation is to be modern, is to mirror what's outside. And it's not about you know, representing from the 80s or a time gone past, it's maybe trying to take the energy that was there that is still here that can mirror what you're doing and trying to make you go back to the people you love and approach them in a different way. It's uh, about facing your life in a certain way. And that's what art is about, you know. And I, I think it's um, it's it's a sorry thing to, to see music as a lesser art than anything else. Yeah. Um, well said, Gemma, and uh, I just want to follow up because I think sonically there's, there's something going on here, and Aisha, too, um, very distinctive approaches to your instruments. That's, that's the other thing about this band that was, uh, was so distinctive. So, Gemma, I want to ask you about your guitar playing because there's, there's an attitude towards the guitar, tone, texture, atmosphere. You know, it's not just you're playing blues scales or, or solos, but you're, there's a different tone and texture for almost every bar in every song. Where did that approach come from? Um, I suppose originally I studied fine art after studying aviation. I went into fine art. Mm. <laughs> and, studying um, aviation? You can fly? No, I was learning to fly. Then wow. I thought I need to do fine art. And um, so I originally picked up um, the guitar to create a soundtrack for something I was working on. And so it wasn't to play the guitar as the instrument it was, but it was to complete... Um, to create a certain sound and noise. So I actually learned it by trying to work out the sounds I could get from it rather than learning chords or scales or anything like that. I tried to learn the sounds of it. And then um, I picked up on, like, Blixer Bargeld from Neubauten, for instance. And the way you approach it is, is trying to get a certain sounds out of it. And, of course, Jimi Hendrix, you know, you play one note, but it depends on the energy you put in that note. It can have a completely different meaning from how anyone else would play that one note. I think in the eight-year history of Sound Opinions, we've never had somebody cite simultaneously in the same sentence Jimi Hendrix and Blixa Bargell. <laughs> that needs to be Makes applauded. <laughs> and, and Aisha, too, you're, you're, in some ways, you, you, uh, you take over songs with that bass. Where, where did that, that approach come from? Because it's, it's not like a background instrument for you. I think the fact that I kind of never played bass kind of technically... Yeah, I kind of ended up just growing with it and kind of just playing on my own and, and then getting into various punk bands and just kind of trying to work out my own way to to play 
my instrument, and, and I really enjoyed kind of coming up with things that sounded slightly odd or slightly strange, or and and also kind of not being a typical kind of in the background basis. Like so, I, I don't know. I think the raw sound of a bass is really amazing. It can be really can really hit you hard. Like well, for me anyway. And I, f- I felt like that I really wanted to deliver that kind of just a really raw sound that really kind of grabs you grabs your attention and just try and like sonically be just stand out because i think the bass is such a, a an amazing instrument and, and just really solid sorry your bandmates cool with that like uh, you come barging <laughs> into the song and take it over for a few uh, bars yeah yeah, I yeah. Guess so. <laughs> here's one last song from savages at lincoln hall in chicago it's called cities full and it's live on sound opinions
Cities Full from Savages live at Lincoln Hall on Sound Opinions. To see video of their entire amazing live set, visit soundopinions.org. You can also see all the videos we have available at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash soundopinions. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I review the new chart-topping album from Canadian rapper Drake. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is a track called Hold On, We're Going Home from album number three by Drake. Nothing was the same. Greg, I think we mentioned this earlier. Drake's almost at that point of hip-hop superstardom where he doesn't need much of an introduction anymore. Born in Toronto as Aubrey Drake Graham, music was not his first career in show business. He was an actor. He was Jimmy Brooks on Degrassi, The Next Generation. That means something to our daughters, but not to us. Big TV show hit for kids. He uh, branched out into music in the late 2000s, and he had some pretty big-name mentors, some people who believed in him from the get-go, Kanye West, Jay-Z, and Lil Wayne. Those three guested on his first album in 2009, Thank Me Later which came after a series of mixtapes. In 2011, the follow-up, Take Care, came down the pipeline, and now it is time for the all-important album number three. Is this guy going to be a superstar? Is he permanently going to be a fixture on the musical horizon? While making Nothing Was the Same, he worked with his frequent collaborator, the guy behind the mixing console, Noah Forty Shabib. And what is he giving us? Let's play a track from the album. This is called From Time by Drake from Nothing Was the Same on Sound Opinions. Uh, thinking about Texas back when Porsche used to work at Treasures. A further back than that before I had the Houston leverage. When I got summer on Michael Kors with my mama's debit. A week of temp flex and I'll never forget it. Cause that night I played her three songs. Then we got to talking about something we disagreed on. Then she started telling me how I'd never be as big as Trey songs. Boy, was she wrong. That was just negative energy for me to feed off. Now it's therapeutic, blowing money in the Galleria. A Beverly Center Macy's where I discover Bria. Landmarks of the muses that inspire the music. When I could tell it was sincere. Without trying to prove it 
The one that I needed was Courtney from Hooters on Peachtree. I've always been feeling like she was the piece to complete me. Now she engaged to be married. What's the rush on commitment? Know we were going through some name a couple that isn't. Remember I talk in the parking lot of the Ritz, girl. I felt like we had it all planned out. I guess I fucked up the vision. Learning the true consequences of my selfish decisions. When you find out how I'm living, I just hope I'm forgiven. It seemed like you don't want this love anymore. I'm acting out in the open. It's hard for you to ignore. But girl, what qualities was I looking for before? Who you settling for? Who better for you than a boy? That's from time from Nothing Was the Same, the third Drake studio album. Jim, it's apparent by his third album, if it wasn't already, that he has his own distinctive sound, his own distinctive way of approaching lyrics. He's created really the Drake cottage industry. A lot of people are following in his wake now. And I give him a lot of credit. This is a big album for him. He sold multi-millions of his previous two records. He could have gone with some big-name producers, some big-name cameos. Instead, he's still working with this uh, this guy, Noah Forty Shabib, who sort of helped him develop that sound over the last few records. Now, the earlier albums presented him as kind of needy, vulnerable even apologizing for sounding like a wimp. He used a stronger word than wimp, but the, the idea was that, you know, he almost got a little defensive about the fact that he was exposing himself the way he was. And he's developed some calluses on this record. There's a little tougher-sounding approach on some of these tracks. But the thing that won me over was those two oil paintings that were created for the cover, basically portraying the very young Drake and, and the Drake of today. And on the record, he says, this track, Furthest Thing, he's exploring that space somewhere between psychotic and iconic. There's a big space in the middle of those two poles, and it's a big, <laughs> empty space. And that whole idea of him being alone in that space and working out some of these issues, I think, is what makes him so intriguing, what makes him so appealing to so many listeners. There are very few people working this territory as successful as he is. He's almost bringing this kind of indie rock, singer-songwriter, confessional thing into the hip-hop game and doing it very, very well. It's a buy-it record. Let me tell you, listeners at home, here's how you know when a music critic it's reaching. It's whenever he or she begins talking about the cover art instead of the musical content of what they're supposed to be reviewing. Sure, sure, sure. I'm glad you like the oil paintings, Greg, but I don't think the contents of this album are very good. Now, for three albums in a row, Drake has been imitating and remaking Kanye West's 808s and Heartbreak. And uh, I don't even have a problem with that. I think the music on this album is pretty successful. What I have a problem with is the lyrics. I am sorry, but you have now made three albums, Aubrey Drake Graham, telling us how difficult fame is. And there is no more tired subject in pop music in any genre today, especially given the increased anger. You nailed that on this album. He's, he's more ticked off than ever. He's ticked off at people who didn't immediately recognize his genius in the music world, never mind that he already had a very solid career going as an actor. Number two, the anger against women who didn't realize how beautiful and how sensitive and how special he was back then. I mean, he's still mad at girlfriends in like the ninth and tenth grade. <laughs> and I am not willing to give hip-hop a pass when, when you have nothing to say over great music. That, this 
makes me angry. You can hear the anger. I'm trashing this record because of that. But what do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we're going to catch up on a deluge of fall releases, including the new Justin Timberlake. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Special thanks to Lincoln Hall, Goose Island, Adam Yaffe, and Andrew Gill for our session with Savages. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez. And one final news note on the way out. Those folk rock giants, Mumford and Sons, have announced they're going on an indefinite hiatus. And people with bushy beards throughout the U.S. and U.K. are weeping. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hello, Jim and Greg. I am Barbara in Chicago. I listen to your show every week, but something has been really nagging at me. I was completely disgusted that you called Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke the feel-good song of the summer, just a week after you reported on the criticism the song received for promoting rape culture. This song does not make me feel good because I live in a country where one in five women are raped. What would make me feel good is for you to balance the airwaves by playing the best parody of the song, which is called Defined Line. Boy, you'd better quit all your sexist ways. So here I'll manifesto of the modern age. It's time to undermine the masculine confines because we don't want to grind. Hi, my name is Lita. I live in Cary now. I'm originally from Minneapolis, so I was responding to your replacement broadcast, and um, I just wanted to let you know that born and raised in Minneapolis, my husband always jokes with me about, you know, when Prince comes on the radio, he's thinking I'm nostalgic, and he says, are you getting misty? But I got to tell you, listening to the replacements sure made me misty. Um, but I also wanted to say that it reminded me of the suburbs, and I'm going to have to go and get the suburbs as well. They're pretty great, and they're from Minneapolis, too. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Trevor Adams calling from Grand Junction, Colorado. I was just starting to listen to the replacements episode, and as soon as you said that you'd like us to call in with uh, ideas for reunions that we liked, I just stopped the episode and I'm calling now. So I just saw the Postal Service over the summer, and that was their 10th anniversary reunion show, and that was incredible. Great light show, great musical performance. It was so fun to see Jenny Lewis up there. It was so fun to see Ben Gibbard play drums. Also, an amazing thing with Postal Service is that, you know, they made this record that was just sort of a side project for both Jimmy Tamburello and Ben Gibbard. They did kind of a short tour, and then that was it. Then the momentum for that album, Give Up, really started building. And in the 10 years, the sales have just skyrocketed. So... 
I just thought that was an extraordinary reunion tour. You could tell it was an amazing experience for a postal service as well. Thanks. Hi, this is Lorenzo from Portland, Maine. The best reunion tour I've ever seen has been the Monkees. Um, I was a few years too young to catch them in the 60s, but I did see them on the 20th anniversary tour. And 25 years after that, on their 45th anniversary tour, they put on an amazing show. Actually did all the songs from the movie Head, which just blew my mind. And if that was the last time they toured, that would have been a great goodbye. Take care. This is Dan from Edmondson, Illinois. Did I hear Jim say, nostalgia is the enemy of all art? Come on, Jim. How many times have we heard you wax on about some show in Hoboken you saw when you were a kid? Or how about all that 70s prog rock you love that you make us listen to? Do you really believe nostalgia is the enemy of all art? If so, you may want to tone down the nostalgia in your own reviews. Thanks, guys. I never miss an episode. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.